Welcome to episode six, my interview with Dr. Wright from Georgia State University. This is the Straight Up Gay Podcast. Welcome to the show. I am Major, your host for the Straight Up Gay podcast, where I have conversations with people about their experiences related to the LGBT community. This podcast is dedicated to learning more about the LGBTQ people by having personal conversations and sharing their experiences. Keep in mind, this show is free of cursing, but we may have conversations about human sexuality and topics related to sex and gender that may result in awkward questions from young children. If you're not prepared to have those questions, turn back now. Today is Saturday, January 28th, 2017, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Eric Wright from Georgia State University. Good morning, doctor. Good morning. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well. I'm glad we were able to finally get our schedules together and have this interview. I was um, really anxious to have it for a long time, and it was just a matter of getting our schedules together when we both had free time to record the interview. So thank you for being here today. I'm glad it worked out. Yeah. So um, let me give the audience a little bit of an overview of how we came to meet. And that was, I saw an article when I was coming up with the concept for this podcast about a professor at Georgia State University partnering with the LGBT Institute to improve research and statistical analysis of LGBT issues in the South. That's kind of what I remember from the story. I'm sure you can fill us in here in just a second. Um, but I thought, wow, that's pretty amazing that Georgia State, especially in the South, you know, where there's a stereotypical idea that uh, the South is more bigoted towards LGBT people. And so when I saw that, I was I was just, man, I got to like thank this guy for taking steps forward to uh, improve the lives of LGBT people or at least the research in, into their lives uh, here in the South. And so I sent you an email. I fully didn't expect at all to get a response. Uh, I was just kind of like, well, maybe one day he'll read it when his inbox isn't so full and he'll be like, oh, what a nice thing to say. And lo and behold, not even an hour later, I got a response from you. And I said, well, hey, I'm considering doing a podcast. Maybe you can come on as a guest one day fully not expecting to have you agree to be on the show. And you responded very quickly. You said, I'd love to, but I'm going on vacation. Uh, and so maybe another day in the future. And I said, well, I don't even have the podcast running yet. It'll definitely have to be in the future. So I personally have been up since five this morning because I was so excited to have this show. And so I couldn't sleep last night. I got up really early. I was preparing for the show. I even went online and did some research into your uh, academic credentials. I was immediately blown away at how much you have accomplished in your lifetime. And uh, I think your academic record is uh, very impressive. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm feeling a little pressure now. I don't know how I'll live up to that. Oh, well, <laughs> you're going to get even more because now you as a doctor and a PhD in sociology, uh, you just legitimized my entire podcast because now I have a professional on the show. Before I was just an amateur, but now it's a real thing. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> to spread some word here. And yeah, talk. please do. Please do. Uh, both of my listeners will be really excited to hear what you have to say. <laughs> 
Okay, so could you please maybe, um, I have your whole curriculum uh, vita here. Um, I can give a quick overview. You have a PhD from Indiana, Indiana University in sociology. You have your master's also from Indiana University, and you have a mm-hmm. bachelor's in, in sociology from Lewis and Clark College. Mm-hmm. You specialize in medical sociology, mental health and addiction, sexuality and sexual health, LGBT health and health disparities, health systems and policies. Um, the list goes on. You're partnered with several LGBT and health organizations at Georgia State University. You are the chair of public health. Is that correct? I'm chair of the sociology department. Oh, chair of the sociology department. Okay. That I'm jointly appointed in sociology and public health. Oh, oh, okay. Yep. I'm teaching both schools. Yeah. And I see one of the papers you wrote here, which I noticed was uh, uh, pretty recent, was Older Gay Men and Their Quality Support Convoys Journal of Gerontology and Social Sciences. Uh-huh. Did I say that right? Yeah. Gerontology. and They have a, spe- a series of journals, um, each dedicated social sciences, behavioral science, I think psychological or anyway, yes. Well, it's very impressive. Uh, you are, are officially published in scientific journals, and I'm a bit of a science nerd myself, so uh, I give mad respect to that, sir. Uh, you have accomplished uh, a great deal in your life. Uh, it looks like you're continuing to do great work in the LGBT community, and so I want to personally thank you for your efforts in uh, improving the lives of LGBT people by partnering with the LGBT Institute. I appreciate that. You're welcome, sir. So can you, let's start off with just maybe give us an overview of the partnership and what you're going to be working on or some of the projects that you're going to be working on with this partnership. Sure. So um, I think probably the most important thing to sort of zero in on is uh, your point about what we don't know about the American South, I think, um, in part because it has been historically very conservative place. Uh, The lives and uh, its circumstances and things that um, Southerners have faced as LGBT people has been sort of really flown under the radar. I mean, if you actually pick up the scientific literature, one of the things that if you're looking at the methodology sections of science papers, which is the part that most people sort of skip, <clears throat> but most of the data on LGBT people were collected on the coasts, um, largely out of New York City or San Francisco. And then during the AIDS epidemic, we got a little better picture because people were focusing on other cities like LA and Miami, uh, where there were large outbreaks. But um, the South has actually been conspicuously left out of the conversation nationally. And I think over the last decade or so, we've seen growing interest in the South and um, the unique things that are happening around LGBT uh, life. Um, And so um, when I came to Georgia State, sort of think about sort of how could we sort of really take advantage of our physical location and really sort of raise up um, sort of um, our understanding about LGBT people in the South. And lo and behold, it wasn't that hard because I discovered there were quite a few LGBT people um, at Georgia State. Um, um, the community here is very large. And in fact, um, some people describe Atlanta as the Southern gay Mecca. Um, and that's an interesting sort of uh, twist um, as we tend to think about Atlanta being an African-American or a black Mecca. Um, and I think it very much is that. I think it's also an LGBTQ mecca. I didn't know that at all, that there were a lot of people who were LGBT here. I figured um, my friend who I was supposed to start this show with, he wasn't able to do it. He just, his life was too busy. And so I had to change the format and do it so that I would be interviewing LGBT people instead of co-hosting with an LGBT person. When I first started talking to him about doing the show, he lived in Alabama or Arkansas, one of the really Southern, typically, you know, that you would not associate with um, having a lot of LGBT people, or at least that they, if there were, they would be pretty undercover about it. And when he told me that, I was like, oh, really? And he's like, oh, yeah, there's lots of them here. 
And I said, oh, I had <laughs> I had no clue. So to find out that there is a, a large LGBT community in Atlanta or in Georgia is um, pretty surprising as well. Until, I guess, I saw that they were having a Pride Festival downtown and down in Midtown, down by Piedmont Park in that area. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess there is pretty a pretty large LGBT community here. So uh, that's something I learned recently. I, di- I didn't know that when I first moved here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think Atlanta probably emerged. Um, there's some actually some really interesting histories um, of gay Atlanta and sort of how it's evolved. But I think what you find is that a lot of the regional cities, I mean, if you go back a little further into history, um, the LGBT community sort of became sort of a focal point of American life. World War, largely in San Francisco and New York City, it sort of has uh, sort of as those communities have grown, the regional cities that are surrounding them have also grown. And I think it wasn't long, long too much, it didn't take long before Atlanta became a hub uh, for LGBT life, in part because I think um, your friend's story actually is probably pretty typical. A lot of people, well, actually they say only about one out of five people in Atlanta, the metro area, are from Atlanta. And I think a lot of people who are LGBTQ actually move to Atlanta because of they see it as potentially a more hospitable social environment, more accepting. Atlanta is one of the few cities in Georgia that actually has a non-discrimination clause. Obviously, we probably need to think about that as a state level from an economic development point of view, but a cosmopolitan area and attracts a lot of different uh, people of different kinds of walks of life. We have a lot of immigrants, uh, which I think a lot of people from other parts of the country don't really think about, but we have vast immigrant populations as well, not just LGBT immigrants, but, and, you know, there's this notion, um, we've been talking about reverse migration of African-Americans who post-Civil War, moved north, thinking they would escape um, what they saw as a hostile environment, but have actually started coming back to the South uh, because they found that they um, missed their culture. Yeah. Atlanta's growing, um, not just economic reasons. I had no idea that Atlanta had a non-discrimination law for LGBT people. I know that's not a federal thing, and I was pretty certain it wasn't for the state of Georgia either. No, that's it's becoming an issue now. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, but that's good to know. I didn't know that, and thank you for sharing. I didn't know that the state of or the city of Atlanta had a non-discrimination uh, law for um, LGBT people. That's a good thing to know. It's a good thing for economic development too. I think one of the things um, I was part of a report that was just published from the Williams Institute. We were looking at the economic impact of discriminatory policies like that. And uh, I think uh, we collectively sort of using some very conservative models actually think the negative impact of discrimination against LGBT people in Georgia, well, it includes Atlanta because even though you have a non-discrimination clause, if you don't have a state law to back it up, it creates some legal issues there. But you think there's about a $250 million hit to the state economy, uh, broadly defined, because we don't have adequate uh, non-discrimination protections in place. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's something that I guess you um, have to kind of uh, immerse yourself into that world to find those things out, because that's not really apparent to most people. I mean, I'm a, I consider myself pretty much a layperson. I do have a degree in business. Uh, that's not something that I probably would have been able to find out without you know doing some intense research into the into the subject. So thank you for for sharing that. Can you tell us some of the things, some of the projects, some of the interesting stuff that you guys are doing with your partnership with the LGBT Institute? So in this first year, we really focused on kind of a, a broad needs assessment, like what are the big issues um, that need to be looked at? And I think the Institute's really, we focused on three broad areas, <clears throat> although one could argue that they're bigger than a single issue, but focusing on our education and employment, 
uh, public health and wellness and criminal justice and public safety. And I think that's because a lot of the uh, community groups and um, people that we've been working with are really very concerned about sort of LGBT life in those specific areas. Um, the nice thing about those uh, specific topical areas is they really kind of connect. I mean, when you talk about criminal justice, for example, you can't not um, also think simultaneously about the health of people who are um, being harassed by the police or um, jailed inappropriately. Um, and you also have to think about sort of the fact that why are they becoming the objects of police attention? Oftentimes those are economic or educational attainment issues. And so they're very much interconnected with one another. Um, and it's often actually sometimes dis difficult to disentangle how they're connected. I, I don't really <laughs> I don't really know where to go with that. But that sounds really enlightening information to find out that when you investigate into the issues of why these things are happening, you find all sorts of aspects that relate to the not just the person whether they're black or LGBT or whatever their minority or if even if they're in the majority status that uh, economic factors affect people of all races and all sexual identities and all gender identities so poor people are affected and I'm sure poor LGBT people are affected in different ways and so I think it's probably a pretty interesting topic to get into when you start researching into it and you see all the different factors that affect people in different ways. Absolutely. I think the, a term that um, academics use, which I uh, now I think some advocates across different groups are starting to use, is this notion of what's called intersectionality. It's a fancy word that simply says um, our individual lives are shaped by multiple systems of inequality. So for me as a white gay man, my experience is going to be very different than a black uh, lesbian. And so when you start to sort of really sort of think about sort of how different systems of inequality uniquely come together to shape an individual's life, you can't talk about being gay without talking about race or without talking about gender or without talking about social class or education. All those things affect an individual's life course. And that's, um, you know, that makes this um, process a whole lot more complicated. And I think that's one of the reasons that we really wanted to focus in on the South, because I think one of the great strengths of the American South is that we are probably one of the most diverse parts of the country. We not only do we have, you know, racial variation, gender variation, we have, you know, economic variation, um, there's a, a religious variation. There's a lot of places where people are here are much more complicated. I think, you know, that's been kind of um, one of the reasons that this for me as a sociologist has been such an interesting sort of adventure because it's really an opportunity to look at how these multiple things sort of come together to shape individuals' lives. And so back to your first question, I mean, I think the first place we wanted to start was what are the big issues here? And I think we've sort of settled that on those three domains. But we also sort of acknowledge that there's not a lot of really good data out there. And so um, right now we're actually preparing to launch a survey of uh, LGBT people that will be pressing out, um, working with various community groups across the South, across 14 states actually, to try and collect some basic survey data on life as an LGBT person in the South. And the goal there is really to sort of highlight the South as an area, because we really don't actually have much good data, even nationally, about the LGBT experience, because for the last Oh, 40 years, everything we know about the LGBT community is done under the rubric of HIV epidemic. And one of the great things that happened over the last five years or so is that we started collecting more data just focused on the LGBT experience. And and to speak to your point about the intersectionality, um, mm -hmm. it's basically just saying people don't live in silos, right? You just, I had no idea that you were a gay man until you just mentioned it. You can't uh, pigeonhole people into one silo and saying, well, LGBT people are affected and only 
only this way or or only LGBT people are affected by this because you have so many different intersections of a person, their economic status, their sexual identity, their their location where they live. I mean, there's so, like you said, the intersectionality of a person and all the things that they interact with and all of the aspects of their life that affect how they live their lives all have to be looked at as a whole. And you can't just silo out people into these neat little columns and say, okay, all these LGBT people are affected this way. Now that um, I know that you are a gay man, did that have any bearing on why you wanted to go into sociology and study public health and LGBT issues? Or was that just a separate interest? Or do you have a, um, are those tied together? No, actually, um, that's very much integral to my story. And I think um, the older I've got, the more I've embraced that. But I came out in the late 1970s. And one of the things that was really hard for me was uh, my parents were not very accepting of my being gay. Um, and ironically, I grew up just south of San Francisco in the Bay Area. I remember quite vividly the afternoon I came home and heard about Harvey Milk having been assassinated. And I cried for three days. And at the time, I really wasn't aware of my, I mean, I was aware of my sexuality, I guess, in a strange way. But um, my mother could not understand why I was crying so much. Um, those three days. And it wasn't very long after that that I actually attempted suicide. And um, that was when it all came out that I was gay. And um, long story I won't bore you with, but um, the doctor that my mother took me to see actually said the best things um, of, uh, probably in my life. He said, so what? Um, and he was the first <laughs> was um and i was it was an odd way to it was clinically probably inappropriate now i sort of looking back like that was really bad clinical uh, technique but um for me it was very effective and um so i um then i went off to college and um, i literally went off to lewis and clark in oregon and um i don't think it was within two weeks of that i had joined something called the students for gay and lesbian rights and i became sort of the spokesperson on campus for um, gay issues I sort of um, really got came out of the closet in a really big way, and that was the fall of 1980. Um, and I don't know if you remember what happened in the fall of 1980. You're probably too young for that. Uh, no, um, I was born in the 70s, uh, late 70s, so I was a, probably a toddler around that time. But yeah. and history is not my greatest subject anyway. So please fill us in. Well, um, when I was in high school, I was really into um, international relations, and I was planning to go to foreign service. But at the time, there was a ban against um, openly gay people serving in the U.S. Foreign Service. And because they were perceived to be a security risk. And so when the election of 19, fall of 1980, which is the year Ronald Reagan was elected president, and I've told the story to a lot of people. So not the first time I've told this story, but sure, um, I, was going to, I find it really interesting. So please continue. Okay. But I was the, I was going to be a foreign service officer when Ronald Reagan was elected. Um, I learned that Jimmy Carter had actually started the process to look at that policy and whether openly gay people should be able to serve in the foreign service and in the military for that matter. Um, and there was a lot of discussion about the policy. And then when Reagan won, I was told that um, Reagan would support the policy and continuing the ban against foreign service officers. So I got really depressed. And I also got kind of mad, um, as you might expect, because my whole life as an under, as a you know high school kid was organized around my having this life. So that first year in college was really hard for me because I had to rethink my plan and I happened to be taking a sociology class, which I had never taken before um, that semester. And I learned a whole lot about sort of how social history works and sort of how societies change. And I ended up um, being encouraged by my teacher that semester um, to sort of really get involved in some research. And so I actually started doing research as an undergraduate 
on homosexuality and I studied homophobia in my small college, which was kind of fun. Looking back, it was pretty impressive study for an undergraduate. Now I look back at it as a professor, but I, I just started, I was having fun at it. And by the time I got done with my undergraduate, I was still trying to figure out what the heck I wanted to do with my life. Somebody said, well, maybe you ought to go to graduate school and be a professor. I'm like, well, how do you do that? And so somebody said, well, you have to go to graduate school. And so I, I started learning about, wow, this could be kind of fun. I could do this all the time. So, but in between there, I had actually not had any sex through high school. I was like the most nerdiest kid that you could possibly imagine. I was terrified of men and women for that matter. Um, I had, I think, two dates my entire high school life. One woman who, uh, I won't mention her name for fear she might hear this, um, but we, she tried to kiss me and I was terrified of the experience, um, partly because it was like confusing because it didn't feel good, but everything I saw on TV said I should be having fireworks and all that stuff. Right. And I, that because I really liked her. I mean, she was a good person. That whole thing was all wrapped up. And then I finally started doing the whole coming out thing and things started to fall in place. Um, and then uh, the summer of 1981 happened which was the year the first cases of AIDS were um, publicly announced. And that really changed my life in so many ways. I mean, I became paralyzed in many ways, like a lot of gay men and, um, coming out. But I mean, for me, it was particularly formative because I was in the coming out process really early in it. I also, be, having grown up in the San Francisco Bay Area and being kind of a nerd about history, I was kind of watching this all unfold. And I realized, you know, the biggest problem that LGBT people, and I didn't, we didn't know much about the T's then, um, or, or the B's for that matter, but I was thinking about it from a self-interested gay perspective, um, was we're like, oh my God, all these policies were being put in place. And then when Reagan didn't say AIDS for the first four years, five years of his administration, I mean, all I saw was all these social policies that were kind of making our lives more difficult even in a more profound way that went far beyond simply, um, you know, religious conservative values or people who just had no understanding about that. And so I think for me, what I really also noticed was that science was how we can inform the public conversation in an unbiased way um, or less biased way, I should say. I mean, it's not always unbiased. Right. Um, but right. I think part of it is, you know, I sort of, I decided that, you know, when I thought about it, like research for me was a vehicle um, to help educate people, to spread the word, sort of know what's really true. And because the more I read, um, and there were some studies back then, um, that there was a huge disconnect between what the reality of people who were growing up gay and or lesbian and what people would say in the media about them. I mean, they were, you know, sexual perverts and all that old stuff, which we don't hear, thankfully, as much now. But there's still people who do say those things. But Ab absolutely. Um, that's a I, I argue on social media and online with people about that. And, and it seems like a lot of times they want to conflate pedophiles with with homosexual people or, or transgender people as as though they are some sort of sexual deviance. I have to I want to go back to what you said about how you kind of uh, accidentally fell into sociology uh, just by chance. And uh, that's a similar story that I had. If you've heard some of the other shows that I did, um, what kind of woke me to the whole being a pro LGBT supporter and, and uh, uh, an ally was when I first started college, I registered kind of late. I kind of decided that, hey, I'm going to go back to or I'm going to go to college and get my degree now that I'm out of military and I want to get my education. And so I'm going to go to school. And I didn't even think about the time frame or I was like, I'm just going to go to school and register. And so I went up to the college to register and I, I got registered and 
I started signing up for classes. Uh, I needed a science, like a social science, you know, like psychology or something like that. Or or a, uh, is it social science? Whatever anthropology falls under. I can't recall right now. It's been a while. Yeah, it's a social science, right? Yep. Yeah. And that was one of the only classes available. It was like anthropology or something I was really not interested in. And I was like, I don't even know what anthropology is. I was like, but... I mean, it's wide open. There's like, you know, 15 people in the class. So, it, it, you know, maybe it'll be easier with not a, a crowded class. And so I was like, I'll give it a try. And I have to admit, I had a lot of fun in college and I had a lot of classes that I enjoyed. But that professor in my anthropology class really changed my entire life and outlook on things. Just getting me out of my ethnocentrism, learning about other cultures and how they, they treat different um, social aspects of their culture. And when I learned that homosexuality and transgenderism are treated pretty much normally by most other cultures as they are not some sort of taboo that has to be hidden and shoved out, you know, of the light and kept in the dark. When I learned that, I was just like, wow, really? And he was like, yeah, as a matter of fact, the North America or the United States and Canada and Mexico are kind of the minority when it comes to the worldwide uh, acceptance of LGBT people. And it kind of blew my mind. I was like, whoa, really? <laughs> and so yeah. uh, then we had a class specifically that was talking about LGBT people. And, and we uh, there were several religious people in there who were making arguments about why we shouldn't allow it. And his arguments refuting those is kind of what thrust me into having my mind opened and becoming far more outspoken and supportive of LGBT people. And uh, I think at the time I was kind of like, eh, it seems wrong, but it doesn't affect me. So I don't care. Kind of, I was kind of a fence sitter, basically, like if they want to let them do it, if they don't, fine, it doesn't matter to me kind of that's where I sat. And so I wasn't very supportive, but I wasn't against it in, in any, you know, outgoing way or anything. Uh, but that class really changed my life. So hearing you say that you kind of just, uh, hey, maybe I'll try becoming a sociology professor kind of triggered that memory that, you know, it's it's funny how sometimes the things that we take just on chance uh, turn out to really have a big impact on our life. So absolutely, I can identify with that. I think you're sort of tapped into something which I also think is really important, and that is when we live in our lives in a bubble, and I think a lot of people choose to live their lives in a bubble, then you sort of, it's hard for us to sort of come together as a society or community. I mean, I think the LGBT community, I mean, uh, a lot of times when I say that I'm gay and I'm doing LGBT work, people say, well, you're obviously a champion, you're biased. And I was like, oh, no, actually, I, I'll tell you lots of things that I think are challenging uh, ways that the LGBT community is adapting to the world. But one of which I think is really kind of interesting, and we see this play out all the time, is LGBT community, which um, the, the leadership oftentimes are largely white and largely male, has done a poor job of sort of embracing people who are African-American or Asian or pick, pick your other sort of racial minority. And so we have a lot of internal divisions within it because I think you find that, you know, people are people. And I think this is probably something you learned in your anthropology class. It's hard and it's scary. I mean, at a deep core level, to sort of put yourself into the shoes of somebody else, as my grandmother would say. Yeah. But I think once you get the hang of it and you realize it, you, it almost becomes a hunger that you want to sort of learn about other people. And I think what happens is that you realize both your own humanity and you realize the humanity of others and that everybody's trying to struggle to try and find a place um, in the world. And if we acknowledge that we're all struggling with the same things and our own isms, as some of my colleagues like to talk about, we realize how we create blind spots in a way that allows us to not experience the world fully, to not perhaps embrace others in a way. And I think you can do that whether you're talking about religion versus whether you talk about sort of social class or education. I mean, um, we've been talking a lot lately in the university setting about sort of how universities are sort of separate from the rest of the world. And 
what is it about universities to create these silos where we don't share what we're doing, which is one of the reasons I'm doing this partnership is to sort of get us out of, and me and my students both, outside of the university so we can expand the conversation. Yeah, so I think that's really great. And now one of the things I want to get to, because you are a professor and you teach classes at a major university, I'm sure you see a lot of students and you interact interact with a lot of different people and you see a lot of different opinions and a wide variety of ideas from people in your class. Do you have any sort of um, really good um, stories or experiences of which maybe you changed someone's opinion on LGBT people, maybe in class or in another scenario in which a person started the conversation with you as maybe, I don't want to, I'd hate to use the word anti, like they're, you know, out there like some sort of street preacher or some sort of, you know, sign horse saying you're going to hell kind of thing, but maybe someone who was kind of like, I don't think it's right and you shouldn't be doing it because it's not natural or whatever the you know, common arguments are. Uh, I'm interested in hearing maybe some of the experiences and conversations you've had with people in which you kind of were able to use your science experience uh, or sociology as a way to kind of uh, get them to open their eyes and see, you know what, maybe it's not what I thought it was. Well, I guess um, you're, you're, the premise of your question makes me a little nervous because it kind of goes against sort of how I approach teaching. Um, in the sense that I don't try to change people's minds. I think actually it's interesting you use that phrase because actually that's what a lot of the university professors are being accused of. And I think most of us don't feel like we're trying to change anybody's mind. We're just trying to share a body of knowledge. I guess part of what I do, if I try to try to change people, I don't really try to change people's attitudes. I try to sort of say, where do your beliefs, how do they connect with reality in terms of what we know as a scientific database? So if someone comes in and says, you know, it's like, I'm anti-whatever, not just LGBT, but um, a lot of people have very, when they come to college, they all have these ideas that they've gotten from their family and their local communities. And so they'll come in with these uh, preconceived notions and psychologists sometimes call them stereotypes. That's the, the simple way of thinking of it. But there's the anthropologists would talk about cultural frames or just the ways we think about the world. And so I just try to sort of through exposing students to empirical data um, about the world, um, whether it's um, people's attitudes and the relationship between one attitude and another, or just listening to them, hearing stories from people about sort of how they struggle. One of the things I do in my class, I show um, my introduction to sociology class, there's this really, really, really powerful video that's kind of old now, but I love it because it shows this woman who actually lives in rural Georgia, um, and she lives in a trailer, and she walks 13 miles to work at Burger King every day to and from. Rain, shine, sleet, whatever. Um, that's how she makes it, and she's trying to support a family of four kids. The interesting thing was this is the story. She's white, and what is also grabs the students because um, our stereotypes of even white people when you have a very poor white person but she's doing the American dream. She's trying to make a living and make uh, working at Burger King. I think it was Burger King. It was one of the other fast food, but it's one of those fast foods. And she would walk 13 miles each way because she doesn't, she can't make enough money to buy a car. Well, the students are always in tears when they see this story. And I think it's because it's a very powerful vignette to show here's life in its reality. And I think when we live our lives in a bubble, it's really easy to sort of look past that. I'm doing a lot of work with homelessness, for example, right now. Um, in downtown Atlanta. And one of the things that's, I, I, I like watching non-homeless people walk by homeless people, because what you see is people will literally step over people. They'll look the other way, perhaps unintentionally, sometimes intentionally, to avoid looking at human pain. And what, in my work, I try to sort of say, hey, let's look at the reality, good and bad, about sort of how society is. And that raises invariably lots of ethical questions. And then 
I usually say, well, then what do you want to do about it? Or how is this going to, how are you going to change your life? And um, this is what I love about sociology is because the minute you start looking outside your, your bubble, it changes you and it can't help but change you in certain ways. And sometimes, you know, some people become, you know, sort of really politically active as a result of that. Other people, um, you know, become simply sensitive and just sort of are more aware. Um, but I think, you know, that's the power of knowledge. I mean, I think it, and it's sort of, the, we talk about liberal education and being so important. If all we do is teach reading, writing, arithmetic, we don't teach about the experience of others. You know, people can sort of balance their checkbook and figure out what their taxes are at the end of the year, but that doesn't necessarily make them better human beings because they're not less, they're not as aware of what's going on in the world. And so that's for me is what sociology is about. It's not about changing people, but I think it does when you start looking at people. So it's really kind of a structured um, introduction to the world. Right. So maybe I chose a, a poor word as, as far as changing their minds. I think more of what I meant was uh, when you are teaching class and someone presents some sort of idea that maybe is flawed or wrong or an incorrect assumption that they're kind of putting the cart before the horse and assuming the end result and using information to back up their result instead of gathering information and following it where it leads. That's what I was kind of looking for is, is do you have any significant experiences in which a person had such a wrong idea that when you presented what you had found through research and, and your life experiences, that it kind of gave them that what I, I always like to call it the light bulb moment where they're like, oh, okay, well, I hadn't thought about that. That's a good point. Maybe I should rethink this. Because that's kind of what happened to me in my anthropology class was I went in there with my preconceived you know position of kind of being a fence sitter. And then in that one class, when I, I didn't even present any arguments against or for uh, LGBT people and other cultures, but listening to the arguments of the other students and hearing the professor's response to those and how he refuted them, he wasn't out to change their minds. But when he was presented with a bad argument saying, well, it's not natural. And he was like, well, Bobono apes do, you know, LGBT stuff and they're one of our closest relatives. And, and so learning these scientific discoveries or the scientific information about LGBT people when someone would present an argument of it's not natural or it's ma mainly to have kids. And he was like, well, old people who get married can't have kids because they're, you know, infertile or whatever, or even people who are infertile or barren can't have kids. Are you going to stop them from getting married? You know, and when he was presenting all these arguments, I had a light bulb moment where I was kind of like, wow, uh, maybe I need to think about this some more. And I thought about it all that night, all that week, and I, I couldn't find a way to continue holding on to my preconceived notion of this is where I my opinion lies. And I had to evolve my position in order to conform with the better information that I found or that I was presented. And so that's what I was kind of looking for. Maybe not that you've changed someone's mind, but maybe through discussion or through lecture, someone has come up to you or someone said, huh, I never really thought about that. Do you have any experience like that? Oh, those are daily moments all day long. Um, actually, that's what makes me excited about teaching because you're absolutely right. But I mean, I'm not, I think the, the nuance here is important because I think a lot of people look at what college professors especially do is sort of changing people's mind. And I think that's where this big difference is. I think I don't have to do any work to change people's mind. I mean, I just sort of say, here are the facts. Um, but the part that I think is really important, you know, we can disagree about facts. I mean, it's interesting sort of having this conversation now with the debate about whether or not there are quote unquote alternative facts. Um, <laughs> but I mean, you know, scientists work really, really, really hard to try and figure out what's true and what's not true. And if you, if, whenever you listen to scientists, it's kind of interesting because every scientist that I know who I believe um, also knows that any, what we know now may change tomorrow based on new knowledge, new investigations, improved methodology. So everything's kind of tentative and it's evolving. 
But I think one of what I like to do is um, in class for me, if a student comes in with a very hardened view of something at the first beginning of the class or in just even in a casual conversation on campus or in the community, it, it happens everywhere. Um, it's like, well, why do you think, why do you believe that? What's the evidence to support that particular position? And then you sort of engage them in a conversation. I think what worries me, which is why I like being a college professor, is that a lot of people outside university settings don't take the time to have those conversations to think through. And for us at the university level, we talk a lot about um, critical thinking as a skill because a lot of times people, um, and this is in the media right now about this whole debate about alternative facts, I mean, people sort of want to believe when the president or uh, Congress or leaders of the country say something that it's true. But if you know history, that's not always been the case. And so one of the cases, uh, the concerns is that if people are trained to automatically believe something, which is what most people are as children, we're trained to do that. That's part of the learning process. Psychologists can tell you all about that developmental process. But there comes a point, usually in late teens, where people begin to challenge authority, question things. Why is that? I mean, the perennial, I mean, you have, you have, you have teenage boys and, yeah. and, and girls, and you probably hear this. Why? You know, I, I remember my parents gave me these three sets of volumes called Tell Me Why, and then more Tell Me Why. And it's always because, you know, there's a developmental stage where everything's, you're questioning. And at some point, we sort of tamp that down in kids in high school in favor of memorization. And then what happens in college is we sort of try to open that Pandora's box up again and guide them through that. And then we sort of sort of try to use um, through teaching, um, how do you discipline your thought process to sort of what's the evidence that you have to sort of support a particular position or not? Um, and I, you know, I have, so have had students where they don't, they look at the evidence and say, I'm just going to choose not to acknowledge that evidence, or I'm going to sort of maintain my belief system, even though it does conflict with his evidence base. I mean, that's perfectly reasonable. I'm not here to change their minds, uh, but I want them to know what evidence says and what do we, what the best knowledge about something is. Yeah, that reminds me of the Mythbusters, um, uh, Adam Savage. He was, he's got a little quote that he's, you can find online or it's uh, I reject your reality and substitute my own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and the I mean, that's a lot of what this debate in the current country is going on is now is kind of interesting. But for me, it's, you know, what I love about, that's what I love about knowledge. It's like, if I don't know something, I'm always much more cautious about asserting something. And so I'll go, I'll Google something, you know, which is the cheap way to do research. But oftentimes it's more, that doesn't never satisfies me. So you kind of keep looking and next thing you know, I'm doing a study about something. So I always get made fun of at, at the lunch table with my friends because whenever someone throws a claim out there, I'm the first one on Google trying to find out if that's true. There's always there's that one person who said, oh, yeah, you know, in Georgia, you can't do this because of this law. And I'll, I'll immediately go, is that true? And I'll start Googling and they always make fun of me like major's got his Google box out, you know, and so I get made fun of for fact checking and, and researching stuff all the time. And going back to that, the rebellious teens and asking why I already have a four year old that does that. And I probably started off on the wrong track because when I tell her, OK, it's time to get she, it's time to get out of the tub. And she goes, why? And I go, I don't answer why it's time to get out of the tub. And then <laughs> it only took a day or so for her to pick up on that. So then when I asked her a why question, she goes, I don't answer why. <laughs> And so I have to maybe rethink my strategy uh, on answering why, and maybe I'll have to start presenting better arguments to my four-year-old. Well, this is actually, that's really a good example of sort of the dilemma about social structure. I mean, we talk about this in sociology, you probably talked about it in anthropology, but, you know, on the one hand, you need people to accept the reality of social norms and getting out of the tub when you have to go to bed and all that kind of stuff. 
Otherwise, society becomes chaos. But at the same time, you also want to train people to be able to question those norms. So just because it's always we've done it this way, um, gay marriage is a great example. Just because we've always disallowed same-sex couples to marry doesn't mean it needs to be that way. So this is where kind of, you know, I can understand sort of the desire for historical order, but when historical order becomes part of the problem, then we have to sort of, you know, in a, in a reasonable society that's informed by knowledge, we should reflect on these things and then make informed decisions based on the best information that we have now. Yeah, and it's it's basically a fallacious argument to, to say, well, we've always done it this way. It's a it's an argument from tradition saying, well, because we've always done it this way, we should continue to do it that way. And usually when someone presents that sort of argument to me about uh, same-sex marriages or, or homosexuality in general, I say, uh, when they use the argument from tradition, I say, well, we used to own people as property too, but we don't do that anymore. We've evolved you know, past that and realized that, hey, this was a bad thing we were doing. We should stop it, and now we don't do it. And so you can make that same argument is we used to not allow same-sex marriages. We realize it's a harmful thing. We should stop, you know, banning it. And so I kind of draw those analogies that just because we always did it that way doesn't mean your argument is a is a sound argument uh, to make. But it's also important to remember that there are going to be a lot of situations where we may not have facts to back up a position or other. Sometimes you just have to make a decision based on your value systems. A lot of my friends are philosophers and um, bioethicists, and we talk about this. When, when, how, what's the basis? But for me, even that's analytical in the sense that you're trying to sort of be clear about what your value system is. I mean, for us, I mean, for me, I mean, it's personal. So you know, you, you and your listeners can uh, write it off for being biased. But you know, I think gay marriage is a good thing, if only because it's also the fair thing to do. Right. Um, and so you can that it's really about fairness. It's not about not being as endorsing a particular religion or not, which is sort of how sometimes the opponents of gay marriage want to frame it, that marriage has always been this. And there's historical evidence, by the way, that's not true, uh, that there's been historical evidence that there have, was a, actually a gay married pope um, who lived in the papal palaces in the 13th century. Oh, really? Um, there's lots of was well accepted in all sorts of Western societies across the world and and places that you would un be unexpected. I mean, this is where you just dive into the history and you realize, well, we're not always this way. So I, I find it troubling when I say, well, marriage has always been this way. No, it's not always been that way. Well, uh, marriage. I'm going to have to ask you, give me, give me some information about that pope that was married or that was a, a gay married man. I, I would like to look at that some more. Uh, so John Boswell wrote a book called Christianity, Social Tolerance and homosexuality. This is back in the 80s. And he was he actually did research in the, uh, the papal libraries. And uh, he was subsequently, when he published the book, was banned to go back to the Pope's libraries. Oh, really? Um, and, but basically because he documented a lot of evidence that homosexuality was very common among um, a lot of the religious leaders in the early uh, Catholic Church. Um, and obviously it's not a very popular book, um, but he was a professor of, uh, at Yale of history. <clears throat> and he's one of the, but there's been subsequent histories, all sorts of histories that have documented um, all sorts of interesting stories. Now, it's never been a case where the Catholic Church, you know, held up homosexuality as an equivalent to heterosexuality. But we can also understand sort of as you're trying to push a religion and you want to propagate people, same is true with the Jewish tradition, Muslim. Um, I mean, it, religion's kind of funny because it depends on producing people who believe in it. So some argue that you know the institution of heterosexual marriage, for example, is really about having babies. But in a 21st century or 20th century even, where sexuality is not simply about reproduction, it's about all sorts of other things, one could make all sorts of other curious arguments about 
what makes you feel good, what what satisfies emotional needs. I mean, it's much more complicated than that. Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, people try to oversimplify that. Well, it's just producing offspring, or it's you know that's the way the parts were made to fit together. Or they try to make these very simplistic arguments, and uh, that's one of the things I've come to discover is that human sexuality is far more complicated than it seems on the surface. That well, part A goes into slot B kind of thing. And yep. That's definitely one of the things I try to share with people is that it, there's a whole spectrum of sexuality and gender identity that uh, it, it's not just black or white it's not even you know black gray and white it's a whole <laughs> it's a good that the lgbt community uses the rainbow flag because it is literally a spectrum of colors as far as sexual identity and, and gender identity that originally when i before i even was exposed to any of it i had no clue it was just one of those things i was completely oblivious to and when my mind was opened uh and, ex and i was exposed to the information i was just like wow uh, okay i have to look into this more and uh, I think one of the things that I'm really thankful for is because I was presented that stuff in my anthropology class that I became uh, more supportive and then later on found out that my son was gay. I have a 15-year-old son who's a, a gay teen and I, I honestly don't know that I would have reacted favorably when we found out he was gay had I not had that anthropology class and that I had my opinions had changed. I was in the military. I was kind of, you know more of a conservative-leaning person. I think I've always kind of been a Democrat, liberal-minded you know, minded person, but because of my military experiences, I was probably more on the conservative end of that spectrum of, of a liberal person, you know, kind of having this macho idea of, you know, I'm a tough military person and, you know, I've served in Iraq and uh, in combat, that uh, had I not had that college experience and, and, you know, like you said, brought out of my bubble and, and exposed to other people's, you know, experiences and cultures. When my son came out to us, I don't know how I would have reacted. I probably wouldn't have been supportive at all. And, and probably it at the very best case scenario, been dismissive of it and, and try to dismiss it as a phase of some kind or something. Um, so I'm pretty thankful that I've had my, I took the opportunity to get my, my college education and really, you know, it helped me be, be a better parent to my son because he's gay. And we try, it, it really makes parenting difficult. My last episode, uh, I'm going to release today uh, was episode five uh, with another mo a mother who was a parent of a transgender girl. And we had a lot of things we could identify with about how having an LGBT uh, child just complicates parenting in a whole nother dimension. Her experiences were complicated in ways that I hadn't even thought of because she had a, a, a child that was assigned male at birth and now she's a transgender girl and they had to consider things like freezing sperm if she wanted to have kids it, which I was like whoa I didn't even think about that that wasn't even something that would have crossed my mind had she not brought it up and so having an LGBT child complicates parenting in a whole nother way because if my son wants to have a friend spend the night that could be like if he was straight and I let his girlfriend spend the night you know I, they could be having sex, you know, normally when you have a kid and, and they, they have their friends spend the night, they just, you know, share the bed and, you know, they put their head and feet in other directions or they one sleeps on the floor and most people don't think about it. But when you have a kid who's attracted to the same gender as him, now that complicates sleepovers in a whole nother way because you're like, well, should we really let this happen? Should we tell the parents that my son is gay? You know, do they have a right to know? Uh, how are we going to handle it? Do we have to make them sleep in separate rooms? Because that doesn't really stop. You know, there's all these things you have to consider that I had never thought of before. And when my son came out to us and we, we my wife and I, we come across these experiences. It's always kind of one of those things where we have to sit down and we're like, OK, we don't want him to think we're punishing him because he's gay. 
we're just concerned for his safety and the safety of the other person who's maybe spending the night. What's the best approach and how can we explain this to him? So I hear your uh, struggle. It's interesting, too, because um, it's becoming more and more common. I mean, one of the things is if you look at closely at some of the surveys, <clears throat> what we're finding is that people under 30 are much more open minded about not only sexuality, but gender. Um, and I think part of that, I think there is a really huge cultural revolution going on here. I think we're finally realizing that people are more complicated than we realize and that people sort of their orientation, whether it's sexual or gender, we're more fluid. And I think what's I think what I love about listening to young people talk about this stuff is they don't like the boxes of male or female or straight or gay. Um, and I remember back in the 70s and 80s when I was um, sort of just coming out and then when I was starting off in sex research, it was always kind of frustrating when we were trying to sort of do surveys of gay people because every once in a while you found the gay people that and like in the 70s and 80s when the, the first day uh, surveys were done, 40% of men and about 60% of, of lesbian identified women said that they had been married and had kids um, from a prior relationship. Um, now, a lot of people said they wrote it off, said, well, they weren't out of the closet yet. Well, in fact, actually, but then I also met uh, very early in my life, actually, I met a, a guy who was 72 years old who lost his wife, who said, I'm going to try the other side now at 72 years of age. And so then he started dating guys. And it was kind of funny because we were at this meeting for uh, Unitarian LGBT people. And he was going out with the 18 year olds to discos in Dallas when we had this meeting when I was in college. I was like, you know, it's like people are more fluid on their sexuality. And I think then this is actually ironically what Kinsey found in the 30s and 40s. I mean, he argued that the most important thing about human sexuality was the brain and how we're all socialized to think only certain things are appropriate or possible. And when you start sort of let back on that, then people sort of feel much more comfortable expressing themselves. And I think that's what we're starting to see with younger folks. Um, so you might not just not to sort of make you panic or anything, but you know, you might see this with other, uh, your other kids. I mean, I'm, I have students walking in, uh, male students who are wearing, you know, women's clothes or makeup, and they're really pressing the boundaries on the gender and the sexuality. For a while there, it was popular for every person in this high school I knew where I used to live um, to say that they were bi. And I don't think they were actually doing anything sexually. But it was trendy to be bi because it was chic. It was cool. I, I don't know. I think these young people are sort of pressing the boundaries on these things. Yeah. Ways that I think we don't. Fully. I can I can definitely see that. My son, he's, you know, his style is, is evolved some from what he used to wear, or at least what I guess what we used to dress him in. And so he, he cuts his hair differently. He usually, I would usually get his hair cut in a sort of high and tight military style like I did. And as he gotten older, he kind of wants to grow it out. So he has a different. He has a different style than I would have expected, you know, when he was five. But uh, it's definitely interesting to see how his personal choices color his personality and, and his style is uh, uh, perceived by other people. It is very freeing. I think what I think what you li when you listen to young people, part of this is about sort of testing the boundaries, and it allows them a curious freedom that I think you know people who grew up in our generations and earlier didn't have. We never felt that. I mean, you know, people always talked about sort of feeling so constrained. Um, I think now it's kind of the opposite thing. It's like there's a lot of stress among youth today because they sort of, they have so many options and they can go in so many different directions. They, how do you figure that out? And then they get old people like us who are sort of really kind of nervous about all this stuff and we don't know how to listen to them in a compassionate way and help them sort this out when they really want that. Well, and as a parent, you, you're concerned for their social status or, or their, you know, social circles in a way that maybe uh, they don't consider, you know, we can see how 
through experience when we were outcast as a child, you know, just because we wore something that, you know, a t-shirt that wasn't stylish, you know, having a whole different sexual identity or a whole different gender identity can, you know, cause you to be an outcast in a whole different way. And so I think as parents, it's not necessarily that we're older. We're just like, maybe that's not the best decision to do. You don't want to get made fun of, or you don't want to have your, um, confidence shaken in that kind of way maybe you should tone it down a little bit and i think it's more or less just concern for their safety in their social circles and in their friendships but i guess if you really think about it some more you would you wouldn't want your kids to be friends with people who don't support them for who they are instead of what they dress like or what their sexuality is like so i think i just refuted my own point <laughs> but i think you also sort of alluded to the big dilemma that we all sort of are struggling with is because this is why coming back to the lgbt institute why being queer youth, and I use queer kind of as an umbrella term here, but being a queer youth in Georgia or Alabama or Mississippi or Louisiana is so much more difficult because I think that some of the pressures that we saw in the 50s and the 60s are still very much alive here. And so one of the big things that we've been working on is uh, youth homelessness and almost a third of the youth who are homeless are kids who are LGBT identified, who were kicked out of their families. I think there's a lot larger number of kids, um, ironically or unfortunately, that have actually engaged in other kinds of sort of um, boundary testing behavior, whatever you want to call it, um, who then were seen as being unacceptable to their families and throw them out on the streets. And so I think this is much more of a problem for LGBTQ youth than it is. I mean, this is why, I mean, it's even a, um, you know, a more feminine, straight young boy or a more masculine young woman is going to get teased and called a fag or a dyke or a queer or whatever you, and they might actually end up sort of contemplating suicide. And there's lots of evidence that this happens on a regular basis or develop severe mental health problems or start drinking or using drugs because they're stressed out about that experience. It has very real public health consequences. Yeah. And I think that that's where I get angry and that's where well, one of the reasons I'm doing all this work. Yeah. We need to draw more attention to it. That's one of the sore spots for me because I was in the military. I have a lot of friends who are in the military and in, in my social media sites. And just the other day, one of them dropped, you know, like in the middle of an argument or a debate, you know, he said something about fudge packers and it just sent me off, you know, on the deep end. I was just like, you got to be kidding me. I can't believe you just throw that out there like that as if it was, you know, calling someone by their name. Hey, Bob, right. You just throw out all oh, these fudge packers kind of thing. And it just, man, when people use those derogatory terms in such a casual and cavalier manner, it really sets me off and I really get pretty firebrand at the moment and just start. Uh, it's probably to my detriment instead of trying to use the Socratic method and, and maybe get to the, the root of why they think that way. I kind of just lash out and, and make bad arguments and, and, and I don't present my information as, as well as I should. And it, it just it sends me off on the deep end. So I can totally identify with that. But, uh, Professor, it's been great speaking with you. Uh, we're, we're coming up on an hour for this recording. So we got to start wrapping up. I could talk with you all day. I really enjoy this conversation. I wish I hopefully maybe one day we can meet in person and we can have a, a personal conversation because I'd really like to pick your brain some more. Or maybe you come back on the show another day after you have some more information to share with us about your projects and stuff. But um I want to just give you an opportunity to share any information about the projects you're working on. Where can people go find out more about what you're working on? How, you know, what are some of the resources that you found that people can use to, especially LGBT people, you know, are there resources, you know, psych psychological, medical, economical resources that help specifically LGBT people that you'd like to share, especially particularly your work. I'd like to be able to go and find some more information about the stuff that you're working on. 
Well, we haven't actually put out a lot yet because we just started this partnership. But there is, if you go to LGBT, or the LGBTinstitute.org um, is the website for the other. We have, there's a whole page on research. And so we're starting to put stuff up there. You can sort of, um, that will be where people could find links to reports. Um, uh, Ryan Rummeron, who's the executive director of the Institute, also puts up news feeds from other LGBT organizations. And um, that's probably a great place to sort of go. And that's where we'll be featuring most of our work in the future. Um, but there's lots of organizations around the state. This is where Google comes in handy. Just type in um, LGBTQ or any one of the in acronyms or spell it out however you want and help. And you'll probably find all sorts of different organizations on the web. And I think there's all sorts of, literally all sorts of organizations um, across the South who are trying to do this work. Just takes a little bit of digging. But I think the goal here, um, one of the things we're doing at GSU, which I'm excited about, is we're um, trying to um, push this notion of oral history. Um, trying to tell the stories of people who are LGBTQ. And so um, a lot of my students are working on sort of connecting with people who are longtime LGBTQ advocates, and then we're putting those interviews actually on the Georgia State website in the library. There's a, an LGBTQ archives where people can just listen, sort of like your podcast, um, listen to the life stories of different LGBTQ activists across the South. And some of them are really very, uh, very, very impressive stories. And They've gone through a heck of a lot of stuff that I think will give uh, goose pimples to even um, an average person. Is that only available to students at GSU? No, no, actually, that's a public service. Yeah. Um, if you just go to George State and then click on the library link, uh -huh. and then you can sort of Women's and Gender and Sexuality Archives. Okay. That's where you would find it. And then actually, in most of the ones that people have given, you can literally listen online. There's actually uh, transcripts of those interviews as well. Okay. So one of the other things I want to do is ask you if people wanted to support your work and help make sure that it continues on into the future and that we get good research and how can listeners, if they wanted to support your work or the LGBT Institute's work, what can they do to help, you know, chip in per se, or what can they do to support your, your work? So at the least expensive level would probably be just sharing our work with people in the community. I mean, I think one of the things that I've learned over the years is that it's persistence about having the conversation and continuing to have the conversation. Um, and I think a lot of people are getting very nervous because of the recent presidential transition that, you know, we, that some conversations that we need to have will stop being had. Um, I think the, the key here is to continue to have the conversations and be compassionate about people and, you know, engage people in a conversation. So, um, as you run across stuff that we've done or lots of other people are doing, share it, have conversations. Um, when um, your friends say things like fudge packer, yeah. um, I would probably say, you know, why do you say that? Where did that come from? Um, you know, and I understand the action. I've had a lot of those, but I've also learned enough and had enough of those conversations and probably had more practice than you. Uh, how do you respond to those kinds of folks? But um, I find sometimes that if you are willing to engage, it takes them off guard more than if you get angry back at them. Um, because they're usually like, like um, when I've been called um, bad words about being gay to my face, sometimes I'll just stand there and look at it and say, well, is that a problem for you? <laughs> I haven't come on. You're the ugliest person on the universe. You know, <laughs> you can think about rhetoric. And, I mean, because you, all you do in sort of pushing back is you confront their stereotypes. You engage in critical thinking without having to have some sort of elaborate classroom environment for it. And just sort of say, well, when you say, well, you know, gay people are all child molesters. Well, actually, if you pull up the statistics, you'll find 
that self-identified gay people are significantly less likely to molest children than straight people identify. Right. Um, there's all sorts of statistics you can pull up um, that, you know, Alexander the Great, by the way, one some argue, military people argue, he's the greatest general in the history of the universe. Um, he actually was gay and had a male lover um, most of the time that he was conquering most of the Western world. Um, so I don't know if he had just one. I think he had multiple. But, but you know, he's, he's well known to have been a gay figure in history. I mean, there's a lot of things where just knowing a little bit, you can sort of bust some of those stereotypes. And I think probably the most important thing is engage in the conversation. So, but in terms of practical support, um, the LGBT Institute is a very, very small group. And, you know, you can make directly donations to the LGBT Institute um, by going to the website. That would be really helpful because one of the things um, that a lot of us are concerned about is some of the things that President Obama, who was very supportive of doing more research on the LGBT community, we're anticipating that um, that probably won't be continued um, over the next four years. And so um, we're going to go back to a situation where um, local individuals and philanthropists are going to be funding a lot of this work. And so any uh, financial resource that could be shared would be greatly appreciated and put to good use. Um, we need to support organizations that are um, doing important work and not just the LGBT Institute. There's um, the Williams Institute at UCLA. There's another one, Fenway, in, at Boston that are doing work on, um, the Williams Institute focuses on economic discrimination. Fenway focuses on health. We're focusing on the South. So we all kind of got our little niches, um, but we got to kind of keep the conversation going, both financially in terms of supporting this kind of work and of course, participating in that. So when our uh, blast goes out in a month or so about this survey, share it with everybody you know and try to get as many people to participate because there's power in numbers. The Transgender Center for Equality just uh, last year did a survey of transgender people. They got 20,000 people to respond to a survey wow. with very little money. And that's hard when you have that kind of data. It's hard to argue against that. So does the so, um, does the LGBT right. Institute, uh, do they have a social media site or a social media presence that would be easy to follow so that when that blast goes out, um, yes. we can find it? Yeah, Facebook. I don't I know enough about all that stuff. You're probably more tech savvy than I am. But um, yeah, if you go to the website, you can sign up for the, there's a Facebook page for the Institute. There's a, a Twitter feed, all that kind of stuff. And you can navigate to most of that through the lgbtinstitute.org website. Oh, okay, great. That's good to know. I'll definitely. So um, what I'll do is I'll post links to those, uh, to the site for the LGBT Institute on the Straight Up Gay podcast homepage. It's just www.straightupgaypodcast.com. I want to say also, if you're really interested, you can always uh, enroll at GSU and take Professor Wright's class uh, in sociology. I'm sure he would love to have as many students as he can fit into his classroom as possible. And I'm also available on my I'm webpage at GSU and you can always direct me direct people to come to my webpage and look at stuff there too. And I'm, I'm a public figure, so you're also welcome to by email. So Definitely. So uh, that's a good way. You can always go to the GSU website and look up the faculty for Professor or Dr. Eric Wright. Um, I actually looked it up. He's got a pretty impressive CV, which is basically like an educational resume. I definitely recommend that people check it out. Um, I was pleasantly surprised at how much work and how many accomplishments you've uh, achieved. And I was like, wow, this guy is uh, for real. And I, I am super lucky to have him on the show. Uh, so we're just going to close out here. And I just want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, both of you guys have been really great for listening to the show and subscribing. Uh, together, we can make the world a better place for LGBT people if we just speak up and become good allies when we hear people disparaging LGBT people. 
please consider donating to the lgbtinstitute.org and supporting their work with Professor Wright. Today, I specifically want to mention his work and make sure that we get the word out. So if you guys could go on there and share links to his work and when they put out their blast for the survey, share it around as much as possible. Remember, you can always email me at major at straightupgaypodcast.com. You can follow the show on Twitter at sugpodcast.com. You can join me on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash straightupgaypodcast, or you can search for Straight Up Gay Podcast in Facebook and you should be able to find it. We should be the only one. The show is no longer really going to be listed in SoundCloud. I used to post the shows there and host the audio at SoundCloud, but uh, I ran out of free space. So now you can listen at pinecast.com. You can go on there and just search for Straight Up Gay Podcast. Again, it should be the only one. There's also a tip jar on there if you want to support the show. Currently, the, the paid service that I have only allows $20 or less to be tipped at one time. So if you want to support the show, you can go on there on Pinecast and, and leave me a tip. And remember to visit our blog at www.straightupgaypodcast.com. And I will see you guys on episode 7. 